Welcome to Clergy and Callers Getting Coffee. Today, I am joined by my special guest, the Reverend Rich Hong, who is the pastor of the First Presbyterian Church in Inglewood, New Jersey, and has been there since 2005. Uh, Rich has his Master's of Divinity from Union Theological Seminary in New York City, his undergraduate graduate degree from Princeton in chemistry, and prior to entering ministry, Rich, you ran a software consultancy for 20 years writing programs, and now you use that skill to write a digital church column for Presbyterians today, um, but I feel like I have to let people know you are a native Chicagoan and a lifelong Cubs fan. Absolutely. So My Cubbies. <laughs> so, so, so welcome. I, I do think like now we have known each other. This is daunting to me as I was thinking of it. We have known each other since 2002. Right. Right. We So over 20 years now. Yeah. At, from Union, where, we're, where we went, which I was a, one year ahead of you in, in the MDiv because I did the straight on through and you did a whole career <laughs> prior to ministry. Um, but I, I, you have always, you have been a Cubs fan that entire time. And I think it has, it continues to be a space that you, um, I, that gives you a, I don't know, refuels you, re-energizes you, sometimes irritates you. Am I, is that correct? <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's like George Will, you know, the columnist who's a lifelong Cubs fan says that, you know, Cubs fans are 98% scar tissue. And so <clears throat> <laughs> that is, that is, uh, that's daunting. Um, yeah, I mean, and I, I'm, you know, my dad was a baseball fan. And so when we were, and, and my, my sibling and I aren't really, but, um, he grew up in Ashtabula. So he was a big Indians fan. Right. But he loved baseball in general. So when we would travel in the summer, uh, we would always pick up games, you know, wherever we were traveling to. So what was cool about that is I got to go to a lot of parks and some of those parks now have redesigned. So it, it, it's nice to have been to them, but, um, you know, even though I'm not a really big baseball fan, I, it was, that was a really fun venture as a kid. So do you prefer to listen or watch or is being in the, being in the stadium, like, I hardly, I hardly ever get to a game in person. And um, I, I did a lot when I was in high school. I worked for a company in Chicago that provided uh, crowd control ushering services to all the major venues. And so um, so I got into all these games for free, just uh, working them as an usher at the stadiums. And so that is a there are a lot, but um, that was kind of cool. But yeah. now lately, I hardly ever, I hardly ever get to a game. I mean, it's, it's painful. It's so much traffic. Yeah. So it's just easier to it's listen easier. and to watch on, on. Right. And thank God for streaming because you can buy an MLB TV subscription and, and watch the games anywhere all year. Now, do they, who, who commentates on those things? Because like, you know, my husband's a big soccer fan. So he watches like, there's never a season of soccer. It's like, it's all the time. Right. And he's specifically an Arsenal fan. So when we married, um, he roots for Ohio state Buckeyes and I root for Arsenal, right. You just, you married into right. that. There's, there's no, uh, that there's no debates about it, but it's, it's year round. And so sometimes we're watching the game and it, the commentating is entirely in Spanish and so, like, it's various things. So do they have specific commentators for that channel? Well, no, what it is, is, uh, they're picking up the, each team's feed. So with major league baseball, every single game is televised. And when I select a Cubs game, it lets me decide whether I want the Cubs broadcast or the opposing teams broadcast. <clears throat> so I'm listening to the Chicago announcers every single game. Do you, have you ever listened to the opposing side to see how they talk about your Cubs or is that just. No, the only other, I only ever got used to that when the Cubs were like playing the Mets and mm. locally, and I would have to watch the Mets broadcast. And so, right. you know, before you could uh, sort of choose how you preferred your television, right. right? 
And there's a very different style. I mean, it, from city to city, there's a very different style. Uh, New York announcers are kind of known for, uh, and I guess the New York audience actually prefers a little more objectivity in the announcer. Okay. Huh. And Chicago announcers are well known for being what they call homers, which is that they are they are rooting, they're just living and dying by the Chicago team winning or losing, and they very rarely will utter a criticism of the home of the Chicago team. And so they they are just really um you know, they're they're the Chicagoan, they're the Da Bears guy watching in the bar, you know. And that's <laughs> I was gonna say, now my Uncle Joe, I don't I've never known him to really be a baseball guy, but he is a football guy and grew up south side Chicago. Um he's 90 now. Um but he bears for sure. Like it is hardcore generationally like his kids were not raised in Chicago their kids were not raised in Chicago they are all Bears fans like it is it is uh you know fairly uh, yeah I don't know those things get passed down in the genes I don't know how that happens but it's interesting hearing it uh like I'm having we're having this conversation about baseball but I kind of feel like COVID kind of launched churches into the same realm. Of course, there were people who were already doing what we refer to as televangelism uh, prior to to COVID. But now you can you can really watch a whole bunch of stuff, and you you do you you're a, a online church watcher guy, right? Yeah, I, I mean, we started live streaming in 2017, so we okay. were we were ready. And the reason we had started was because that was clearly the way things were headed. And so pre-COVID, the largest churches in the country were already reporting that they had more people watching them online than attending their churches. Hmm. And, and we're talking huge numbers. And so we're talking, you know, one of the largest churches in the country talked about how, you know, they're multi-campus. So they have multiple venues, multiple services at each venue. But they were averaging about 40,000 a weekend total across their venues. I can't even fathom that. It's it's really awesome. And, you know, they break it down. But they were averaging about 40,000 total. And then online, they were averaging 100,000. Okay. And so, you know, so when, when you look at that and you see that, it, it's kind of an amazing thing. And so we said, we've got to do this live streaming thing. We've got to start. So we did it in 2017. And uh, we actually turned the cameras on early. We had been planning to start, you know, you're, you're over the summer, you're putting in equipment. You know, we tend to work on an academic kind of year. Yep. And we were planning to start right after Labor Day, you know, the start of a program year. But what happened was we had a baptism scheduled in August. Mm. And the family was a family, uh, love them dearly. They were here just for a few years from the Netherlands, because there's a huge company uh, whose, whose U.S. operations are not too far from our church. And they work for that company. And, and so they were sent here for a few years, and they've since gone back to the Netherlands. But they knew we were doing this. And they asked, you know, is it possible to turn this on wow. early? And so we turned it on a few weeks earlier than we had scheduled to do so. All right, so it's a soft launch. But that day, their family texts us a picture of them watching our the baptism in the Netherlands. <clears throat> wow. And you talk about just proof of concept. Right. You know, and connection right and connection, right? That's yeah. like, that's the connectional church right there. Right. Yeah. So that was that was just beautiful. Now, one of the really interesting things that has happened uh, that we've noticed for our own folks in both directions, really, since COVID, is during COVID, when everything goes online and everyone is watching online, what we've noticed now is the number of people who actually have an affiliation as a result of that with more than one church. Mm. And so there are a lot of people now who attend a church so and they attend one church and they go there and they like the programs, they like the fellowship, it's where they know people, but they've also along the way picked up an online church 
Mm -hmm. they're often watching the online church on Monday or Tuesday. And it happens to, you know, it's usually a preacher that they like or something like that. But they're now feeling an affinity with multiple churches that are all accessible to them because of the online ministry. And, and, and now they're feeling this multiple affiliation. So it's kind of interesting to think about what that means for the church if there's no longer is even a one-to-one correspondence between a a person and a congregation if they have multiple congregations yeah that that's really interesting because it used to be like that was it your church was in your community that's where you had access to and this really opens up other doors and opportunities i mean so that you as also you as a pastor can then have a church that you are watching the worship services for that is is you know because like i love our worship services but i also love other worship services right there's a reason i'm in ministry is because i'm a bit of a nerd about this stuff right i i really like it but but one of the things that i hear clergy colleagues in ministry repeatedly say is things like I need a, like for years, right. I need a place where I can be a parishioner as well as like, you know, somebody who's not providing, like, I love going to that workshop because it means I have to, I can just go and show up and worship and not have to worry about it. And you, you were practicing that pre COVID with some places. Now, I don't know who all you, you, there are some that you, you, you trend toward you're, you're a data driven guy. That is in ministry, prior to ministry. And I I would love to hear some of your thoughts as to to why, because I I see it as like, it's almost the way you do it, in my view, is very prayerful. Like it it feels it's very intentional. Uh, You know, you're not just doing it to do it, right? You're not gathering information for no reason. Uh, But because of that, you've you've often looked outside of the, our denomination, the PZUSA for that model of ministry. Can you talk about that some? Yeah, I pretty much only look outside the denomination because the the denomination, there's a lot of sameness, first of all. And secondly, I'm, I'm looking for what works, Mm. you know, and, um, you know, going back to a sports analogy, uh, I said, you know, when you're looking for an assist, when you're looking for a new head coach, you look for a person who is an assistant with the Patriots, not the Jets. <laughs> you know? okay. My brothers it's, just all cried just a little bit as Jets fans right there, but true. But right. you're true. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> accurate. Yeah. And so I, I look at where things are working and, and I don't have to agree with everything they do. And I certainly can't do everything they do. It, it's just that there's there's always one little thing that'll help you move one portion down the road. And so, um, and the, the data piece of it is just, or it's more the analytical piece of it, comes back to actually what I did in chemistry. And this is where it all kind of ties together. So in, in chemistry, I was in a, a part of chemistry called synthetic organic chemistry. Okay, and so this is, it it is what it is. It's organic molecules and you're synthesizing them. And most of this is what new drug development is. New drug development is learning to make things that are going to be biologically active. So wait, I just, I, because I, I need to process this a bit more just so, because then I can fully understand your analogy. So would it be like studying say cancer cells right Right. because our brains don't know they're producing mutated cells a synthetic organic chemistry would be somehow synthetically letting them know to stop or no no it's it's making a molecule that you find let me give you a classic so there's a cancer drug out there you know back when i was in school over 40 years ago uh, synthesizing it was a hot thing. So there's a cancer drug that they discovered. It's and you might have heard, have you might have parishioners who've been on it. It's called Taxol. It's a breast okay. cancer drug. Okay. Taxol was first discovered as a naturally occurring substance in the bark of the Pacific yew tree. Wow. Okay. All right. So this is what they often used to do. They used to just collect biological things because in the amazing diversity of nature 
nature has produced these chemicals that do things. For example, when you go back in history, you find out that aspirin, they, they isolate aspirin because they had discovered some indigenous tribe somewhere in the world that learned that when you get a headache, they said like, chew this leaf or chew this branch or twig or whatever, and it makes your headache go away. And then the scientists analyze it and they realize that the active compound is what we now know as aspirin. So there's this compound that they found was bioactive against uh, a certain subset of breast cancer cells. And it was isolated from the bark of a Pacific yew tree. The problem is there aren't enough of those trees. If you're mm -hmm. going to treat enough cancer patients, you'd basically have to cover, you know, cover. So then you're deforesting, right? Yeah. You're just eliminating everything. Okay. Right. Okay. And so, so in order not to do that. Right. And, and you just can't, you just can't make enough trees. You can't dissolve enough bark. You just can't do it. So instead, what you have to learn is how can we make this in a laboratory? And then once we learn how to make it in a laboratory, how can we make it at a factory scale to be able to produce enough? Dosage? So it's like if the Lorax, if they had done that with the Thedes, Thedes, it would have been much better for the whole book would have been different. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So what happens is that as a chemist, what happens is you take this molecule and you know what its chemical structure is. Okay. And so you throw it up on a board and then you look at the things that are in it and you say, how would I make it? How would I create it? And this is what's called retrosynthetic analysis. You start with the end and you work backwards. Hmm. And so a chemist looks at this and says, well, this part over here is kind of tricky, but if I had A and B, I could make this out of A and B. The problem is A and B don't exist. No one knows how to make A and B either. So then you take A and B and you go, well, how would I make A? And you go, well, if I had C, D, and E, I could make A. Except C, D, and E don't exist either, okay? <laughs> and so you go, well, now, and, and then you keep working backwards until, until you, you get to things that you know how to make or you can buy off the shelf. Mm. Those analyses are often 26, 27, 28 layers deep. All right. And you have entire teams working on certain pathways in this because you can imagine how much it branches out over 26 or 27, yeah. 28 layers of depth. And you have entire research teams that are working on one pathway up here to get to these parts until you can make that thing. That's been my guiding principle for church. Mm. So I, I think about what is a vibrant growing, active church. What does it look like? And it's got all these things, right? It's got an active family ministry. It's got active mission. It's got active fellowship. It's got active, it's got all these things, okay? And, and you have all these things and then say, that that's a vibrant church. And then you sit there and say, okay, well, most churches, you look at them and go, well, I really don't actually have any of those things. But then you say, but if I had this and this, I could have that. Right. And then I don't have those either. Well, if I had this and this, I could have that. And, and I map that out in my brain. And when you map that out to, a, you know, it's not 26 levels in a church, but it can be like three or four levels. You map that down. And then when we start to have people get involved in the church or resources become available to the church, you sit there and go, ah. Ah, uh, now I have that. This is where this is where this this resource fits on this tree of things that I need. And I can also look at where am I closest to having the path kind of complete to vibrancy. It's almost like playing Monopoly and you, I was gonna a, I was gonna yeah. say though, but it, but maybe a more cooperative game. That's what I was thinking about. I was thinking right. at first I was like, oh, it's like Settlers of Catan. And then I was like, no, it's really more like pandemic, right? <laughs> which is which are board games, right? Yeah. Because Settlers of Catan is still an individualized game, whereas pandemic is a cooperative game. It only works if you're using these resources from other things and bringing it to like it only works if you're doing it collaboratively right and um and we and we do think even though our system says we're connectional and i and i believe we are there are times that we all function right. like 
like individuals. And, and it's interesting that you bring up monopoly because I talk about that in terms of like policies and stuff, right? Like always when I go into new spaces, I'm like, okay, I love to see the rule books. I like the rule books. Now tell me your house rules, right? <laughs> because I know how to play monopoly, but everywhere I've ever gone, every place has a different set of house rules that they run on that I feel like are important to know so that I, I know what I'm like, how, how to proceed forward and work with, but you're, you're also talking about that. Some of that analysis that you just described, you've had to look outside of the PCUSA because while we might put together a nice program kit, it doesn't, it doesn't do what you're just talking about. Right. And, and, and often I'm just looking and I'm trying to get an idea and I see the way a place does a certain thing. And then I sit there and go, okay, I can borrow a piece of that to fill this spot on our pathways. Mm. You know, this, this is how, th this is how that works here. Okay. And, and that's, and, and then you start filling and in spots. You're very intentional too, in the way forward. Like if you're like, okay, if our goal is to increase membership, by 5%, like that, that's real numbers. And how do we get, how do we do that? Like, it's not just, Hey, we want more people in our pews. It's, it's like, we want this many more things, this many more people. We want this many more people interacting with our stuff. That's great. We have a presence. Now we want people engaging it like the next. So you, you actually read then all that analysis that these lovely social media sites give us and you're like hey why are people cutting out there and what do we do to keep them right and 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 actually i, I it's really hard in a lot of ways to um to focus too much on the end goal i think that's actually a mistake is that is you focus too far down the road as opposed so you start with the end goal but that's not your focus right the end goal is a place that's there but in the near term you've got to focus on what's in front of you Okay. It, it, it's kind of like, um, you know, I've never done this for a living, but if you've ever heard of places that do cold calling for business, all right, well, they've developed a script that they have confidence in, and they know that this script on average works actually on a fairly small percentage of people, right? The vast majority of people will just hang up on the person who's doing the cold call. Right. Okay. Um, but they understand this will work on whatever, one in a thousand people or something like that on average. So they know that that's the case, but they don't set a goal then in terms of how many customers are going to get or what kind of sales are going to get. Their goal is how many cold calls can we make? Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Because they understand that it will pay off down the road. But what you, you just start with, okay, if you sit there and say, uh, if I make 10,000 cold calls this month, which means I will get yelled at, cursed at, hung up on 7,000 times, it doesn't matter, but you know, right. I, I, will, I will get a certain result, okay? It, 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 you just know that this will lead to that. And so you sit there and say, all right, what do we need to do as a company? We need to, as a company, figure out how, where to get people who are willing to get hung up on 7,000 times a month. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and if we can do that, all right, then we will succeed. So can actually back down to, well, you know, cause you can get to that point and say, well, my problem is I don't have anybody who wants to do that. I don't have right. anybody who's willing to get yelled at that much. Who's willing to endure that much vitriol. Okay. It's mm -hmm. a terrible job to have. I would, I would never do it. I, I mean, it's not my skill set. Yeah. Right. I would never do it. Okay. I hate it. It would just destroy me. I, uh, all right. I've had to do cold calls in specific moments of my life. And I, it was like, I was like, okay, this is just three hours of my life and then it'll be over. It's just three hours and right. then it's done. Yeah. Yeah. But if you find, uh, I don't even like to do it like fundraise, like fundraising for, you know. Oh, no, a, this is when I was modern. a kid for my mom and didn't have a choice. Like, okay. this, like <laughs> right. you don't have a choice. You're doing this. This is what we're doing today. Right. No, you don't get anything special for doing it. This is the cost of being in this family, right? Like this. Right. Okay. <laughs> but that's the kind of thing is that if if you needed that, say, in the church for whatever reason, if you needed that, and then, you know, whatever it is, you go attend a cold calling seminar and none of it's relevant to you until the person says, oh, we 
we look for people who used to do this as a job. And we found out that people who used to do that as a job, and it's a dying industry, transition really well into becoming cold callers. And you go, ah, great. Now I know where to go find them. That's what I'm going to look for. And so. Uh, So that, I mean, you know, I mean, biblically, that's sort of the model of like, go and knock and then shake off the dust of your feet, whatever, and move on to the next. That's like biblical cold calling. Um, But, but you have, I mean, I mean, obviously anybody can, and I, and I do read your articles in Presbyterian today, but you're, it, it's also interesting because I think you, your church is very clear with its mission and vision of what it wants, right? And everything works out of that. So while in what you described, it's like from here to here in the way that you have done some of your ministry internally, it's like you, you have, it's, it's that Simon Sinek, right? Start with the why kind of circle right. model. I mean, your, your why is very clear and then everything else comes out. And it's not just clear to you and your ruling elders, you have made it abundantly clear to um, like your church members are very clear with that. Can you talk about what are some of the, what are some of the processes or what are the ways that you do that? Or why was that? I know, I realize this is like three questions, but why was that important? How did you sort of, what did you look at to do that? And, and how has that affected now your ministry? Well, I think it's, it's, it's mostly just a matter of repetition. Mm. And so this was just something that I learned back in my business days. All right. Um, it was an advertising person who told me a very thing, a very simple mantra. He said that um, clients get bored with their campaigns before the public does, because the client see, pays attention every time their ad comes on, every time their ad runs in a magazine, their client looks for it. Everyone else is skipping past it and doesn't notice. And, and so um, he said, whenever a client calls me and says, do you think it's time to freshen up our ad? He said, that's when it's beginning to work. Mm. <laughs> okay. So being willing to repeat your values, repeat your direction to the point where you're thinking to yourself, oh my gosh, people Again. must be, they must be just rolling their eyes at how often we say this, how often we talk about it. I guarantee you that's only when that's the point where the people are actually noticing that you're doing it at all. <laughs> okay. Right. And so that's one of the dangers is that a, a pastor sits there and says, Oh, I, yeah, I talked about our values, but I did it for like three weeks in a row. Everyone must have heard it by now. It's like, come on. Every one of us in churches has the complaint where you announced it in the bulletin, you announced it in the newsletter, you announced it in church, and then the person says, I didn't know that was happening. happening. Yeah, Yeah. and they're in your church, right? These aren't even the people on the outer, right? These aren't even the people peeking in through the windows. These are like people who are in the pews. Right, and they didn't notice. And And they didn't know. So that's gotta be your clue of like, of just how much ad nauseum repetition there has to be in order to communicate values, in order to communicate strategy and and direction. And then it's my fundamental belief, and this is the bottom line, is that I, I don't believe that faith, that Christian faith is just a nice little add on. I, I believe it really makes your life better. Right. And I'm not talking just about the old fashioned, if you died today, did you know where you, did you know where you're going to go? No, but that, it, that has never been my, like in talking with you or hearing you or seeing you preach has never been what I would say has been your focus. Like, it's not about eternal, like your focus isn't, that will happen. And you're right. not in charge of that. Right. Not in charge of that. And that's fine. But what does change is when you know there's a loving God who cares about you, who you can have a relationship with, who, who wants the best for you and is giving you guidance about how to achieve that in your life so that you can go forward in life and just 
have better relationships and have more confidence that you can trust God with your future and, and, and have a moral center that says, okay, here's what I want to do. And, and here are the boundaries within, within which I'm, mm -hmm. I'm willing to do it because I want to be a good person. Uh, okay. All of those kinds of things just, just enables you to live such a more fulfilling, meaningful, you know, life because it's God directed and, and God led. Mm -hmm. And I, I believe that's of such value, such real practical value that you can go out there in the world and and that makes all the difference in the world, right? With any with any person, if I'm, you know, like the old joke goes, right? In past pastors, we're in sales, not management. And, <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and the question for any salesperson is, do you believe in the product? Do you use the product? Do you believe in the product? And you're not just selling it because you want the commission, but you genuinely believe that your customer, you know, will benefit from having the product. That's, you know, that's all the difference in the world. That it's interesting as I, I, I recall a conversation I had, well, probably 20 years ago with somebody who, um, you know, so it was before I was married, before I had kids, before I was ordained, like all of that. And I was, I mean, I was in seminary, but I wasn't ordained yet. And I remember somebody asked me like, okay, one day when you have children, are you going to be really mad if they don't believe like in God, the way you do? And I was like, I paused and I was like, I don't, I, well, first of all, I, the God I do believe in my belief is not what makes god exist right god exists right so like you know my kid not believing in god wouldn't make god cease to exist but the part that would be missed out on that would make me sad not angry is exactly what you're talking about it's the relational it's it's the knowing what having a strong sense in my core as a child of God has meant for my life that I, that's the part I would be sad, but that, that is about my kids or anybody's like way they walk through the earth. So that, that, that would make me a little sad, but it wouldn't make God cease to exist. I, none of us are that powerful <laughs> to do that, you know? But I, but I agree with you, like the reason that I do this work or want to do this work it, and we'll do it in all things. And it doesn't matter if I know I'm doing these things to bring God glory. Sometimes the other people will know that too. And sometimes they won't unless they ask, but it doesn't like, you know, so it's not, I guess it's not that same proselytizing message that I feel like you know, grew up, like, I'll give you something to eat, but you have to believe what I believe. Right. And it's like, no, I'm going to give you something to eat. And I do it because I believe in God and God loves me, but because God loves me, I also believe God's in you. So here's some food. And I, you know, this is why. So if you ask me why I'm doing this, this is why, but you don't have to do that in order to get some food to eat. Right. Right. So I, I, th I think it's interesting, but you, you also are a person that I look to and I, and I know you have strong opinions on, <laughs> we don't need to get into the, the weeds of the Presbyterian church polity and structures of all that kind of stuff. But in general, I think, what is a conversation that you think the larger church should be having that we're just not having right now. Maybe some other churches are having it, or maybe places in this world are having it, but we as a as a, a larger universal church aren't talking about this thing. And it might be things, you know, what's that conversation that we're not having? That that is such a great question. And wow, is that a complicated answer? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um but you but you like complex things. You right. like, I like complexity. Um, <laughs> I think what we, I, I think at the end of the day, what we're facing is a number of very specific questions around our purpose. Mm. And I think the denomination is actually trying to answer this question 
um, with the Matthew 25 type initiative, uh, uh, which I, I like in some ways and not crazy about in other ways, uh, but that's, you know, it's more a matter of sub-focus and, and that kind of thing. But I, I think the, the fundamental questions it has to answer are, first of all, why, why do churches exist? Mm-hmm. Why does the denomination exist? Mm-hmm. And is is the clientele of the denomination people or congregations? Mm-hmm. I, I think it hasn't figured that out um, b- because the the majority the the reality is that we are a con- we are a denomination that is vast majority of our congregations are rather small, mm-hmm. but half of our people are in our largest churches. Yes. Okay. And this is, you know, you look at most any presbytery and you sit there and say, out of X number of churches, how many churches, if you order them by number of people, how many churches are constitute half the members in your presbytery? And in most presbyteries, that's somewhere in the vicinity of between the top 10% to 20% of congregations contain 50% or more of the members. And so then the question is, um, is your constituencies who you're trying to support people or, or congregations? And, and then what, how are they doing it? What, what's, the, what's the reason why these congregations exist? Mm. What, what's the purpose? Um, and I think that we haven't really had that conversation. The Matthew 25 initiative came out and and I and I like it right Uh, but I'll tell you that one of the things that I always talk about when I give presentations on our on our own church ministry is that my favorite verse in Matthew 25 in the section they focus on by the way you notice they don't because it's it's uh, to the end yeah but my favorite verse in the part they do focus on is I was in prison and you visited me and the reason why I think that's so important is because the person is still in prison. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, I was in prison and you busted me out. (laughs) I was in prison and you bailed me out. I was in prison and you overpowered the guards and helped me escape. At the end of the visit, the person was still in prison. Mm -hmm. And so the piece of it isn't necessarily about, I'm going to solve your problem. It's, I'm going to come alongside you and care about you in your problem. Now, now you're, now you're like, that's a whole thing, right? Of like, how do we sit with people and actually just sit with them and bear witness and be present versus somebody sharing with us or us going somewhere and like fixing it. That's a whole different scenario, right? Right. And, and that's the thing is, is what I've actually argued, and this may be strange from a person who loves megachurches, but <laughs> megachurches are actually really good at understanding the importance of at a certain level being extremely personal Mm. all right the issue isn't small versus large the issue is personal versus impersonal Mm. and you cannot sit with someone without being able to be personal with them when you sit with people you you are it's very deeply intimately relational and we have a lot of churches that are small, but not intimate. Okay. And, that, and, that's interesting. That's really interesting. So go keep going on. That's all right. I have to say about that right, right now. And, and whereas the largest churches work, they, they often have a small group model, right? So they're, they're based around small groups because the idea is that, yeah, we're not going to get intimacy at a, at a mega church level, but if we're composed of hundreds of small groups, what we expect is that intimacy is going to happen in those groups of eight or 10 or 12 sitting in someone's living room. And our goal is to foster the idea that everyone's going to have a place where they can develop Christ-centered intimacy with others, people who will sit with them when they're in prison, who may not solve their problems, but when they're in whatever kind of prison of their lives they feel they're in, someone is there to visit them and sit with them. And, And I've seen small churches that don't understand the intimacy they're they're actually 
not intimate with one another. And it's also really hard to do that. If you're 40 people, that's too many to be intimate with. 40 right. is too big a group. 40 right. should be thinking of themselves as four intimate groups of 10, not a single group of 40. Um, so I think that some of our small churches, as well as larger churches, are, are failing to provide places of intimacy within their congregations that, that allows people to truly understand and care about one another. And well, so I mean, that leads right into, I think, something that I, I won't say uh, Presbyterians do poorly. I would say in general has not been a skill set taught is that level of vulnerability that's necessary for right. relationships. You know, like there are certain people you'll be vulnerable with, but that, I mean, that's also exactly why I have clergy colleagues in ministry that I go to for very, like we, we have our own like groups within groups or group, you know, like there are people that I meet with and, and they're part of this structure, but then there's another group we might meet with to do a different kind of work. Um, because oftentimes I, I was saying that in the pulpit is a place I feel like I can be vulnerable. And I don't mean like, I've said this before, like not, it's not telling my worst horse story. It's not oversharing. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's not, well, some might say there's crickets <laughs> there, but, but like that, it's not therapy, right? Like I have a therapist for that, right? And And I have good friends for that. So like, my friendships don't come like, and we're talking about those friendships of, of like people for whom that is the primary role, right? I am friends with people in my congregation, but my primary role is pastor. Right. And, and so you, you need to have those groups within groups and how do you develop that? But I think modeling what that means to be vulnerable, because I, I, I think sometimes we spend a lot of time talking about issues and less about uh behaviors in a way that has been detrimental to some of the relationships in the church has made some go away and people go i don't want to be intimate with those people i don't want to be vulnerable with those people because when i was they spit me up and chewed me out right right and so now like rebuilding that trust is really hard but but Trust building does happen on this micro level. Right. And we're not being trained to foster that. I mean, you think about in our system, right? right we're right. told that we're not members of our local churches. We're members of the presbytery. Correct. Now, I don't know about your presbytery, but I've yet to see a presbytery that's really effective at creating safe spaces for pastors to be vulnerable with one another. I will tell you, a presbytery meeting is not a safe space to be vulnerable. <laughs> okay. No, 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 it's not. But I mean, that gets me like I, I'm like a thorn in the side because there are other people in my presbytery who agree with it. But I was like, okay, but if I'm a member of the presbytery, then shouldn't I be paying my per capita to the presbytery? <laughs> like, why are only my members paying a per capita? If I'm a member here, like instead of continue, because we have a fairly high per capita in our presbytery. And I'm more like, hey, before we raise that another cent for them, why don't we think about asking the 50 or whatever clergy to pay a per capita? Because the the if it's just about money, right? But is it? Is that also a sign of my buying into the membership? Would I feel more inclined? I don't know. I don't know that money's ever done that for me personally. Uh, money is not like where the basis of some, but you're right of the those relationships are, but you're right. Like at a presbytery meeting is typically not a place where we model vulnerability. I remember doing that exactly one time at a presbytery meeting. Uh, maybe twice, if you might push it on to one of the worship services I led, right? Because I talked, it was about our camp and I talked specifically about camp being life-saving. For some of our people, camp is the is a life-saving measure. And our churches can be that way too. But um, but you're right, in general, it's not, <laughs> you know, it's it can be a little gossipy and it can be a little, and I'm, I'm as guilty of that as the next person on, on those things, but yeah. It's so, so where do you go to learn that? If that, if that's part of the work that we do, then where do we go to learn how to sit in the muck with somebody without having to clean it up? 
yeah, that's it's re, it's really hard, but that's the essence of most uh, small group ministries mm -hmm. that that exist that are out there and uh, small group curricula and small group training um, that is provided to people. And it's the idea that that's really where um, where where they want um, people to um, to end up. And one of the big mistakes or not uh, mistakes but one of the big misunderstandings of, of mega churches and their big showy worship and all that is in our churches we're so wedded to the idea that the game is on sunday we're like the nfl man the game is on sunday okay sunday's right. the game and for mega churches sunday's not the game small groups are the game mm. And so North Point. So what Sunday? Just the celebration of the game? It's the celebration. It's the entry point. It's the thing that's so attractive, attractive that it gets you in the door. And, mm -hmm. and so um, what, what Andy Stanley at North Point, you know, I follow him all the time. Well, uh, you took me. I mean, you, you, your words encouraged me to go check that out myself. And it right. was delightful. It was great. But yeah. yes. And, and what he says is that worship is the foyer of your house. Mm. worship is the foyer and what's a foyer foyer should make everyone feel welcome it should say come on in it just your foyer should scream enter okay right. and then he says service is the living room mm. living the living room is service okay and, and so like you go to a friend you know you, you start to get together with other people but you're not really intimate, but you're alongside them. So he said, service right. is like you go over to a friend's, not a friend, but you go over to some, you're invited to someone's house for dinner who you don't know that well. Right. And where do you sit? You sit in the living room. They welcome you in the foyer and sit in the living room. Small groups, he says, is the kitchen table. That's where your friends, you don't sit with a friend in their living room. You sit in the kitchen. Yes. And, and that's real relationship. And so he says, uh, so the goal is to, is to get people into the foyer, then get them into the living room, but ultimately get them to the kitchen table. And, and that, that, that's an interesting model. Cause I've always said that, um, I, I feel like the most important piece of furniture in our household is our dining room table, which is in our kitchen. It's not yeah. like we have two because we live in a man. So it's a big house. <laughs> so right. there's like a formal dining room, which really is more of a game table and and then the actual dining table that we sit at to have dinner which is in the kitchen and um and growing up that was the place right that was the place where we learned how to be vulnerable we learned how to have discourse we learned how to cry and get mad and do all those things and like go through the whole process share ideas show love and affection you know and it was really a place where that day-to-day -day living with people, which is where the relationships are, right? Relationships, I think a lot of times are in our day-to-day. -day. And, and um, you know, sometimes you never know who is going to show up, but there certainly was going to be room at the table to welcome them in if they, if they had, which might be a little different than what Andy Stanley is talking about. But that communion table, you know, if you, if you want to say it that way, like that level of intimacy, um, is really, yeah, it's really essential um, to provide you with not only the physical food you might need, but the spiritual nourishment you need in order to venture out after you, you know, you leave that space to feel like, okay, that did it, that refueled me. I understand why I'm doing this work. Oh, I have a place I can fail miserably and people will still love me. Like I have people who are there for me with this sort of process or can help you articulate. I think it's, that's really, um, really important. And when I ask my members about why they're there, that is exactly the answer that they'll get. It's about the person that showed up when mom and dad died. It's about the person who, um, you know, came and sat with them during their cancer right. treatments, you know? Yeah. And that's why I think it's so important, um, you, you know, in the Matthew 25 thing, not to get fixated on the solving on the, I was hungry and you fed me, but that's why I focus on, I was in prison and you visited me because hmm. I, because I, I think that we have to not because you can get that savior mentality. If you start to feel your job is to solve people's problems, as opposed to, to sit 
with them. And if you can bring a solution to bear, that's great, but the thing is showing up. And so the way we do prayer requests on Sunday, for instance, is all of our prayer requests are texted in, and then we read them aloud in service, whether you're in the space or not, but that way people who are watching online can participate in real time. But uh, all those prayer requests that are texted in go to a text mailbox that we have through a texting service, and our deacons pick that up and respond personally to each and every prayer request. So each and every prayer request that comes in will get an appropriate response. If we have their cell phone number in our database, then we know who it was. We do ask them to put their name, but sometimes they forget, but we can look it up. Right. We don't know who they are. They may just get a text back saying, we're praying for you. Is there anything we can do? And we, by the way, we don't know who you are. <laughs> right. All right. right. If, if it's somebody, you know, if somebody's reporting that someone fairly close to them you know, is in the hospital, you know, or they're in the, or they have, they were in the hospital, they may, they will get a visit, they may get flowers, they'll, they will get a card, you know, right. so whatever it is, whether it's flowers, a visit, a card, an email, uh, a handwritten note with something. There's a response. There's a response and, and, and it will happen that week. So every single person who puts in a prayer request on Sunday will get a touch from the deacons before the next Sunday. It will happen during the week. I don't actually know how it happens. We, our deacons um, <laughs> have figured Magic. out. How, right, our, our deacons have, it's, it's the most wonderful phrase I can say as a pastor that I don't actually know how it happens. I just know that it does. But that's an expression of this larger vision of in order to grow, we have to be personal. And so that's what I often emphasize with churches. You, you have to be personal. It's not small or big. And even a piece of our technological uh, world is about understanding that the people we're ministering to live in a, technolo in a technology-driven society. And so when we present things technologically, they're not seeing the technology. It's invisible to them because right. they're immersed in it. And so that's just the way you communicate because that's what they're used to seeing. And so it, it, it's an expression of understanding their lives. Yeah. Yeah. Now I have um, a quote from the movie, You've Got Mail going through my head. Ah. Right? <laughs> Whatever anything else ever becomes, it, it's got, it begins as personal, right? When he's like, it's personal, not business. And she's like, I hate that. Right. Because whatever it was, it began as personal, right? This store is personal to me. It's personal right. to the neighborhood. You do know that's my favorite movie of all Yes. Time. I, I actually <laughs> happen to know that is your favorite movie. I know you're a big well, you're a big Meg Ryan fan, but, yeah. but Tom Hanks, I think everybody almost sure. is a fan of. So before I get into my final, final question, which is about the Care Bears, I uh, do want to know, because you are, um, like me, an avid reader, TV, movie watcher. So what should we all be, you can say one of each, or you can just focus on one. What should we all be watching, listening to? engaging in besides obviously the cubs what else um all right if it comes to things that if you want an answer that's more related uh to churchy type stuff no it doesn't have to be it can be anything okay. well <laughs> well all right i mean i'll i'll give i'll give um a churchy type plug okay, okay. and um there was a series it's a few years old now on netflix it just ran for like eight episodes one season called seven days out and it's a documentary. It's, and each each episode is a documentary about a different thing. And it's the last seven days before the event. Oh. Okay. And there's an episode in there about the reopening of 11 Madison Park, which was rated, it's in New York City, it was rated like the best restaurant in the world. And they're getting ready to reopen it after completely gutting and remodeling the inside. And the last, last seven days are really frenetic. They are, there's such an attention to detail around everything they do, all right? It's insane how, uh, how they, and the, the guy who's featured in there with the co-owner, Will Guadara, uh, just wrote a book recently that's a great read called Unreasonable Hospitality. Mm. It's about going over and above. And, but at the end of that episode of the documentary, what he talks about is 
at the end, he said, they're in the connection business. They're in the business of helping people connect uh, with one another. And he said, sometimes the documentary ends with him with an opening night after reopening. And he says, sometimes you close your eyes and you just hear the buzz of the conversations around the tables. And he says, and you know, it's perfect. And that- It's awesome. Right. And, My and brother I, used to say, you know, a party's good when everybody's conversing around the snack table. Right, right. What, and so, but it, this was all a product of them being fanatical about the details and mm-hmm. things that you would never think of. They're absolutely fanatical. Like they have a revolving door that you enter through and they say people, because, you know, it's going to be one of the most expensive meals you ever had in your life. Right. And so before people enter, they take, they like to take a picture in front of the sign. So they enter. So every time a guest comes in, the host goes back over to the revolving doors and sets them perfectly. So they're not askew so that the backdrop of the picture is perfect. <laughs> that is, that is detail. That right. is detail. No, I've never even heard of this. So I, I would, I would love to check it out. Yeah, it, it's great. And, uh, and so, um, yeah, so so I just I, I just love that. Um, another show that I loved recently was Tulsa King on Paramount. It's Sylvester okay. Stallone, and he plays a mobster who comes out of prison. And what's also nice is that not only is Stallone still great, but it is a fish out of water. He's been in prison for 25 years, and now he's got to get used to the world as it is. Oh, and the world has changed in 25 years. Right. And so he doesn't yeah. understand a world with apps that doesn't use cash. <laughs> right for sure i mean and that would be daunting like i mean it it it, it is um so my my final question is and this this comes from my theological place that i think that i mean i'm a child of the 80s cartoons but i think that care bears are the perfect embodiment of spiritual gifts right so that's where this comes from from i it's just like your core value right your core belly value and they shoot it out with love into the world and uh, and you know the color is just fun and some people have a bit more reasoning behind it than others so if you were a care bear and if you were embodied as a care bear what color care bear would you be and what symbol would be out on your belly that you shine out in love to the world Oh, I don't know about a symbol. My favorite color is blue. Okay. Okay. So blue is just my favorite color. A particular hue? Like, or is it? No, pretty much anything that's blue, although I tend toward bluish gray. Okay. Okay. Um, In terms of Care Bears, I'm definitely, I think grumpy is blue. Yeah, grumpy is blue. And um, I'm definitely grumpy. In fact, this past Halloween, my costume was Eeyore. Who is also blue? Yeah, also blue. A gray blue, right? A little, right. you know, a little sad. But I, I, that's a great image because I, there's space in in all worlds for that. And I do think it's a, like, sometimes there are feelings that people don't like, aren't comfortable with, that they think, oh, I need to not have that. But I, I love when we have models of saying, yeah, that's all right come as you are and it's all right if you're a little grumpy or you're, it's all right if you're a little sad or a lot of sad you know and I I like that in these worlds of basically uh carefree and fun they're always these these reminders that that is not everyone's baseline right one can have joy without a smile on their face and being happy. Like those aren't the same things. So there is a grumpy bear. So would you take his cloud um, or their, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I, I guess Air I bears are gendered. So would you I, take their, their cloud symbol? Yeah. I, I've been told that if you show me a silver lining, I'll look for the cloud. <laughs> and, so, um, and, and in a way that's kind of, what motivates me? Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm. I've always said that my goals in life are goals that I will never achieve mm. because um, it's a. There's a, a an old saying in dog racing, which I've never not. I'm not a fan of at all. But there's a saying in it. You know, they have that mechanical rabbit that right. goes on the track, 
And there's an old saying that says that if the rabbit ever breaks down and the dog catches the rabbit and realizes it's not a real rabbit, the dog will never race again. Oh. Because it understands that it's, it's all fake. Yeah. So you can never let the dog catch the rabbit. And that's actually kind of my um, outlook on life is I want to have these big, wild, audacious goals that I will never achieve. Mm. Because if I ever did, I would stop chasing. So I, that's beautiful. And um, and it it does remind me of like, Yes, if we think about stewardship and stuff like that, right? If we think about those angles of legacy and stewardship and what we're leaving, it's building stuff that we'll never see, right? Like this is my building these, like somebody I, I was reading recently, right? And it's like, you have these stonemasons who built cathedrals that they mm -hmm. never saw as right. like they never witnessed they never entered them as houses of worship but they weren't you know they weren't building them for for them right they were building it for something else somebody else continued it on and finished it so i i think that's a beautiful um image i also say i i think it um it i won't get into it here but that comment makes it very clear as why you're not a very good rester rich like you're <laughs> Yeah. I don't know if I don't know if you're the rabbit or the dog in the scenario, but <laughs> either way, you're not resting. So we'll, we'll we can talk about that at, at a different time. But I I thank you for um being a guest for being a part of this. This and, was great fun. This yeah. Great fun. <laughs> All right. Thank you.